0: geopolitics and empire is joined by returning guest venezuelan-american jose Nino, who is a commentator and political analyst will be discussing the u.s border and migrant situation thanks for joining the podcast once again jose how is life in texas
1: oh it's going quite well yeah the lockdown stuff has been loosening for the past few months and things are going back to normal i mean you do see some people all masked up and stuff but Generally speaking, things are going the way they should be, though other states are not doing so well in the U.S., obviously.
0: I I hope uh, we continue down that pathway of returning to some sort of normal. But I fear that uh, we might have uh, a dark winter and they're going to lock everything uh, down again. That's my feeling. Uh, Unfortunately, time will tell. Uh, So the last time I discussed the border issue was with left wing author Todd Miller. Today, we'll be looking at it from a contrarian, uh, dissident, right, conservative point of view uh, as you sort of uh, paint yourself. Perhaps we can start with the piece you wrote for Substack on Mexico. You write about how cartel power is growing and creating insecurity on the border uh, as well as within the U.S. In fact, recently, Chile warned that Mexican cartels were attempting to set up shop uh, in their country. You've also written about the tens of thousands of Haitians that are now coming to Texas, uh, I've kind of lost track of it. First, I I read that, you know, like 10, 20,000 Haitians are coming in now. I just read today and uh, like 80,000 might be coming in. So you're observing the situation from ground zero in Austin. In terms of U.S. border security, you know, what's going on? uh, What's going wrong on the frontera?
1: Well, we at the moment, the U.S. has a pretty globalist administration that tends to take a much more open borders approach a much laxer approach to immigration as opposed to say the trump administration whatever faults the trump administration had it did put the idea of border security on the priority of issues that it was going to tackle because if we go back to the bush era especially that's when i got into politics that's when the border issue really got out of hand and then you had the obama administration that really didn't do much and then we we saw a reaction in the form of Trump, the election of Donald Trump in 2016. He ran on a Pat buchanan light type of platform where he was actually talking about border security. He got some policies here and there, like remain in Mexico, also restricting like public charges, like people who ended up on the dole couldn't really come in. And he got somewhat of an immigration moratorium implemented during the Wuhan virus pandemic, Obviously, these didn't go far enough because I've long advocated for not only like a very strong border wall, but also an immigration moratorium the way the U.S. had from the 1920s up until the 1960s before the passage of the Hart-Celler Act. Pat Buchanan also strongly supported that. And to some extent, uh, Donald Trump did allude to that on the campaign trail, and he got that piecemeal during the pandemic. But... Now, with Biden in office, they are going back to kind of the status quo, if you will, though border security is still somewhat tighter than in previous administrations, like, say, the Obama and Bush administration, because of the fact that um, there is a kind of nap, um reversion to tighter border security in some senses, because of the deglobalization going on right now and the reorientation of supply chains. Nevertheless, they are trying to bring in migrants whenever they can whether it's the afghans or haitians but but what we're seeing though is that the there's a gradual uptick of migrants and i think that the biden administration all things being equal would very likely try to open the floodgates as much as possible because. They have a very strong electoral incentive to do so, for one, because migrant groups, when you look at the data, they go 60, 40 or up to like 70, 30 Democrats in elections, especially them and their posterity. So they have a very strong electoral incentive to do that, as well as um, there's a very strong cheap labor incentive, too. And this cuts across Republicans as well. There are strong. Oligarchs in both parties that want never ending flows of cheap labor to continue to flood in. Nevertheless, I am somewhat optimistic because of the gridlock in DC. Um, and even some Democrats in swing states, they're pretty hesitant about passing a mass amnesty bill right now because we are in a pretty dire economic situation where millions of Americans are out of work. So just adding in a massive labor pool of like new migrants in is something that most people would not be happy with, and could cause a massive backlash. And I think even the most globalist of Democrats are kind of coming to that realization, which is why you've seen news stories of the current amnesty bill that's being proposed. That was, they're basically trying to sneak it into the gigantic infrastructure bill. Um, that it's now pretty much dead. Nevertheless, the border security still remains an issue because you obviously have Mexican cartels that are very active. And then you just have also a US doesn't really put much of a premium on border security because let's face it, the US is more concerned with securing the borders of its client states, whether it's Saudi Arabia, Israel, South Korea, Japan, you name it, Germany, all the U.S. has really deprioritized Latin America for the most part in terms of its grand strategy and overall security infrastructure. So you're going to have a lot of problems where Mexico and Central America, especially Central America, because that's where most of the migrants are coming these days. Mexican migration has actually decreased substantially over the past decade to the U.S. So you have like in effect, a kind of vacuum, if you will, where the U.S., lack of attention in latin america is creating a lot of issues and many ngos globalist ngos have taken advantage of this to use country not just even like central america or mexico as launch pads but even countries like ecuador and others to move migrants all the way up and form these caravans and what my whole thing is that if we're going to have like a national security state or a rational defense policy or whatever, it starts at our border. It should be to secure our sovereignty and not use it to nation build or intervene in countries that are not within the US's traditional sphere of influence. And we should have proactive cooperation with countries in the region. And that's one thing I think that Trump and AMLO did really well is that they were able to build pretty solid relations on in terms of stopping a lot of migration from Central America going through Mexico, and they were able to constructively do that. But I think we obviously need to do more, and unfortunately, the
0: current ruling class that we have in D.C. is just not up to the task. Speaking of uh, AMLO uh, and Mexico, so this week, uh, Mexico announced that two will be giving uh, asylum to 13,000 Haitians. I don't know what to make of that. Uh, on one hand, I feel migrants need to be respected uh, and helped. But on the other hand, I don't think we can allow migration to run uh, roughshod. I've actually had migrants uh, threats in my life outside the home of a family member here uh, in Mexico. We were loading some things um, into a car one night um, in, in the city. And a young migrant jokingly said out loud, you know, what if I kill a guy and just take uh, his stuff Uh And I turned to stare at him sternly until he just said, just kidding. Uh, And so, you know, I I think migration should always be via the legal route so immigrants can work legally and also be expelled if they aren't behaving properly. I've lived by those same roles myself as a guest in foreign countries. You know, what are your thoughts on the migrant situation in in Mexico and how Mexico is dealing with its southern border, uh, especially if we look at Mexico as a buffer to U.S. border security?
1: I haven't studied Mexico in much detail with regards to its immigration, but it actually, if you look at its overall laws, they're pretty restrictive. If you, if you compare it to like the US, they they generally in, are pretty strict about enforcing, uh, at least like before AMLO, they have um, enforced them pretty strongly when it comes to like Central uh, American migration. It's just that these migrants would just go to Mexico and it'd be like a launch pad and they just move up to the us but they would not like be staying in mexico i think that immigration is an issue that should go according to the national interest because even legal migration at times can be detrimental to the national interest especially from countries like let's face it that have that are known for weaponizing their migration to create fifth columns you see this with turkish migration to the to Europe, which is basically a fifth column over there. That's why you hear the term of the long arm of Ankara with regards to Erdogan's uh, grand strategy to project Turkish influence in European states without having to use conventional warfare. And you see this same thing, too, with Chinese migration across the board from Canada all the way to the U.S., where it's used as a way to basically facilitate mass corporate espionage. This is the 21st century style of warfare and you don't need to fire a shot. And many people, especially neocons and neoliberals, haven't really gotten that. And that's why I think that we are long overdue for a pause. There are certain times, especially like, say, during the 19th century, especially the Industrial Revolution, where it made sense to have pretty large pools of immigration but then there's other times especially during like a pandemic and a deglobalization phase where it just makes sense to retrench when it comes to migration and restrict and look for like say more skilled migrants or people that actually can add like immense value when it comes to like nuclear power or just like geniuses obviously i, I if you have like a spouse or whatever i'm in favor of that but i think that there has to be much more of a retrench national policy with regards to immigration and one that basically suits the national interests of the U.S.,
0: Right. And what you said about uh, Mexico trying to protect its southern border is what my previous uh, guest, Todd Miller, said as well, that Mexico has been uh, trying to protect the border. Uh, and as well, what you say about migration uh, as a weapon, I was listening recently to a really great channel Balkan Info, which is in Serbian. But um, there was a Serbian uh, official basically saying how there's the possibility that, uh, you know, the weapons that were left behind in Afghanistan that went to the Taliban, we might see... People from the Afghan region, uh, as well as from the Middle East, now going straight into Europe and causing a, a huge mess uh, in Europe, uh, as well as you mentioned, um, Turkey is is, is uh, egging that on. Um, you also have written about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' lawsuit against the Biden administration calling its uh, immigration policy of reloaded, relocating illegal immigrants. Well, you know, illegal. <laughs> Your thoughts uh, on this, as well as, you know, looking at Florida sort of as a Microcosm. What, do you think, DeSantis and the Florida uh, resistance will be successful in? You know, leading the way toward reversing some of the, you know, broader tyrannical um, policies that we're experiencing at the national level.
1: Well, yeah, Ron DeSantis is an interesting character. He has kind of surprised me because before he kind of struck me as neocon light and somewhat of an establishment figure when he was in congress he was like kind of your typical israel firster type of republican that was just always like regurgitating generic talking points but when he came into office in florida he has surprised me specifically for his resistance to the the lockdowns and everything and he's done a pretty excellent job in that he's kind of set the standard on that ground and now he's just also taking that kind of contrarian approach to politics regards to immigration. DeSantis has actually gotten some decent immigration reforms in terms of cracking down on sanctuary cities in Florida, as well as tightening up the labor market there by implementing a form of E-Verify to make sure that illegals don't get hired in private businesses and also like state contractors as well. And he's now following up all of that with his recent lawsuit to stop like the use of like resort of state resources and even federal resources to relocate migrants illegal aliens in florida and i think this is where immigration policy is kind of going where you're seeing a lot of states file lawsuits and even some like texas are taking the matter into their own hands it's starting to enter into the discourse that red states will be taking more proactive measures to try to secure their own borders and implement their own immigration policies in fact in texas you see in the gubernatorial primaries governor greg abbott has two challengers running to his right in Alan west and don huffines don huffines is actually a ron paul supporter but he's a guy who thinks that the state government should take over the immigration question he doesn't see the federal government as a competent enough entity to do that and even alan west has called for the creation of a border patrol agency within texas to handle all like immigration security measures so you're seeing a change in the discourse now where states are going to start assuming more power and if you look at it historically speaking immigration in the u.s used to be very decentralized In the 19th century up until the 1870s and 1880s when the federal government started to take a more active role on the matter you had states basically be able to expel immigrants that just behave improperly that engage in criminal behavior didn't fit the profile of the city or county they were in or even those that winded up on the public dole they were able to expel them that's what the model used to be but i think now as D.C. just gets more dysfunctional and the polarization in the U.S. gets stronger, you're going to see states take on more controversial roles within their own jurisdictions as opposed to relying on D.C. to pass laws because there's a lot of gridlock in D.C. And it seems that in D.C., the ruling class there is more concerned with administrating rather than governing, which means that you have a bunch of bureaucrats passing a bunch of edicts that no one voted on in complete defiance of like a democratic will or any type of proper legislative procedure so you're going to see like more bureaucratic tyranny and as a result states will probably start resisting or start assuming roles that the federal government traditionally held because i think the u.s is going through a kind of overall breakdown and you're going to see just much more localism, I believe, in the next few decades.
0: So, do you think this kind of uh, what you've been touching on, you can we can see a trend here where states are taking back power? Uh, this is sort of kind of like a decentralization, and you've outlined in the in the background this scenario of balkanization, or uh, you know, we've talked about previously like a, a lights kind of you know maybe ideological civil war, economic civil war, some type of political. Civil War? Do you think? And you've you've written about secession. Do you think there's any meat to this idea of you know some states possibly uh, seceding? Because I I think if something like that happened, I mean that would be a a really big deal.
1: Yeah, secession is a complicated topic because it's definitely much harder to do when you have at, at least in the present when you have like a strong state like the U.S. Because a lot of secession movements. Tend to happen in very heterogeneous states, or even states where, like, the state capacity breaks down and the central government just can't really allow it. Right now, you have like this really weird conglomeration of like state power and corporate power in the U.S. That I think would inhibit like an, a secessionist movement outright at the moment. Nevertheless, I do think the nullification. And the localization of a lot of politics are the first steps you need to have before entertaining secession. I do think, like in a distant future, it's very distinct possibility if the U.S. doesn't get its economic house in order, or if it faces geopolitical reversals abroad, that it will have a, a breakdown in order, and I think that's when secession will likely happen. Whenever there's a, a really huge loss of confidence in the system, whether it's because of economic breakdowns or that the central government has become so alien to large swaths of the country, it will happen. But I think right now, what's here to state is nullification. We've already seen it with marijuana legalization. A lot of people don't realize this, that numerous states have already passed marijuana legalization laws in complete defiance of the feds. And then you're seeing this start to happen with the Second Amendment sanctuary movement in the US, where a lot of these counties and cities are beginning to resist not only state level gun control, but also even federal level gun control. And then on immigration, I think you're going to start seeing that as well. It's gonna be a whole host of issues too, from abortion and what have you, because a lot of people are now are starting to lose confidence in DC. They just don't trust it. It's becoming much more alien. So they're going to be turning more towards the state governments. I wouldn't say this is going to be resulting in like secession in the next five years, but I think there is a groundwork being laid for it. What really has to happen, I think, is like some pretty big, like black swan event, like a total currency collapse or some type of geopolitical event to really accelerate it. But I think the US is a current constitutional order is probably not long for this world, though. I think that. The U.S. is going through a transformation, and it's not going to look anything similar to what most people were accustomed to learning about in their civics textbooks.
0: I want to go back to what you touched on earlier about uh, globalism, ideology, um, you know, why this is all happening uh of course uh, in relation to the migration issue of course you know one reason is blowback from a century of uh, american imperialism and destruction of latin america Uh, you know let's let's not mince words the u.s empire uh, stole so much wealth uh, and left behind failed states in Central and, and South America from, you know, Honduras and, and Haiti and, yeah. and and which is why these people are now in a desperate situation. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, we are witnessing the ideology of globalism at, at play. And as you mentioned, you know, the Biden administration, Democratic Party are full on globalists. I would argue that the Republicans uh, and con- I'll call it conservative uh, incorporated, so to speak, ink, yeah, con ink. <laughs> right, right, that the, they could be classified as, as globalists uh, yep. as well, based on their collusion and their inaction. And uh, I see this basically kind of the idea of ancient Babylon, right, the Tower of Babel, to mix together the world's cultures, uh, traditions, tribes, yes. To form one giant multicultural uh, empire and a new identity, because by then erasing traditional forms of identity, this leaves uh, individuals and groups of people with no way of defending themselves, right? Because once you have no cultural, spiritual, national, patriotic uh, identity or roots, you have nothing then to defend. You then are made a subject of this new identity of uh, globalism, and uh, you're kind of in their hands. And then this, this you've also mentioned as well. It creates an electoral pipeline uh, for Democrats, and it augments the power of the managerial state. So, I mean, what are do you see any other like in your mind goals of of, of globalism, and what, why why they're doing this? Because I see they're doing the same thing in the European Union, where the EU is made up of you know twenty twenty eight compact um states with their own identities and they're trying to erase those uh identities and try to create this you know tower of babel again in in europe and it seems like they're trying to do that in in the u.s as well
1: yeah globalism is basically about like erasing national identities at its core and where you no longer have like an organic nation state with an organic culture And like the U.S. is basically deformed into a shopping mall with nukes. Like, let's face, that's it's no longer like the historic Americana that people were used to from like the 1880s up until like the 1950s, give or take. And it's turned into a global consumer imperium. And what's funny is with regards to Latin American migration, it kind of fulfills the goals of the Knights of the Golden Circle in the 19th century, where they wanted to actually basically annex a lot of Latin America and create this like weird type of Anglo imperium that with like Latin American features, like just like dominate the entire Western hemisphere and in many ways, the migration, the mass migration and the breakdown of borders of not just the U S but also of all of these other Latin American countries, because let's face it, whenever these countries are being used as launch pads for migrants, they're basically losing their sovereignty. This applies to Mexico. It applies to Panama Uh, ecuador and even colombia as well so like the the idea that it's just like the u.s that's being assaulted by this it's really not it's like all these countries they're being treated as just shopping malls for big capital and ngos that want to destabilize countries so yeah it's all about creating a rootless cosmopolitan elite these um davos man that Can just go from country to country and not show any loyalty to those cultures and work to destabilize it. Fundamentally, the ethos of the ruling class in the US and Europe is invade the world, invite the world. You invade these countries, completely destabilize them. You bring in a bunch of refugees which creates a huge polarization cycle because a lot of some from some of these cultures are just frankly alien to like the historic american nation or europe and that creates a lot of tension and then you just encourage this never-ending cycle of migration which it it serves the corporate interest because not only they get cheap labor they also get a bunch of consumer units a lot of ethnic grievance lobbies, lobbies love it too because now they can become these diversity commissars when you have so many unassimilable migrants, it's just like a completely, it's like Viagra for the managerial state because now you can justify creating a whole new bureaucracy to handle the affairs of insert migrant X group and all that. And it basically, it's a jobs program for a lot of the oligarchic class and also the bureaucratic class, but it hurts like the everyday American and those that actually want to preserve, like their historic nation.
0: I love what you said, shopping mall with nukes, and uh, I'm seeing, uh, I'm really not liking what I'm seeing here uh, in in Mexico. I, I know. I've talked to Morris Berman, the cultural historian who wrote the trilogy in *The Fall of American Empire*, who lives here in Mexico. He's talked about how Mexico is becoming uh, Americanized, and it's really sad. Like everywhere you go now in Mexico, it's just monopolies everywhere. Con- power is concentrating, and and uh, of course you still have like the we call it uh, abastos, the the, the bazaar uh, downtown where you can go and get all uh, cheap all the natural you know fu- fruits, uh, food you know meat, vegetables, fruits. But more and more you're seeing like near nearby, the only places to shop are like Costco and sam's and, and and Walmarts and you know there's autozone and and kFC and and Home Depot, all here you know McDonald's and Burger King and it's just like yeah. <laughs> I was trying to run away from that, and it's here now I don't know, I, I'm <laughs> going to have to run further and like i, I don't know, I don't know what's going on and yeah. um another interesting point you've written about was left wing uh, soros linked organizations pushing amnesty for uh, all illegal. Aliens, uh, you mentioned that you kind of said that's kind of dead in the water for now. Uh, I think they've said they would grant citizenship to any illegal uh, aliens who have beco- who have uh, come prior to 2010. And uh, that made me kind of look something up you know, because conservative Ronald Reagan also granted amnesty and legalization, naturalization for uh, illegal aliens. I'm not sure if the number is correct that, you know, 2.9 million or 3 million uh, illegal aliens became citizens um and so you know i, I i'm not sh- um i'm not sure but that may actually have been what allowed my parents to become u.s citizens uh i know they had arrived to the u.s illegally uh so i i i don't remember if it, if they went uh, if they became citizens because of reagan's amnesty program so you know i I don't know what to think how do we square this kind of circle of you know uh reagan and the conservatives did it back in the 80s and now the left uh is is trying to do it um Again today, uh, I mean, h- how do we look at that? You know,
1: <laughs> well, yeah, that was an interesting period of time because that's when the Republican Party was actually much more globalist, and when you had the really strong Bush influence there, and yeah, you had like Reagan basically talking about a kind of proto NAFTA type of program, a really like globalist program with like Latin America at that time, and he essentially passed an amnesty that basically destroyed republicans chances in california because of just demographics like that's just the cold hard truth that many conservatives will uh, refuse to acknowledge and now you're kind of seeing it in the southwest too because of that amnesty you're seeing the residual effects like arizona recently flipped to the blue column texas is getting much more conser- uh much more competitive Democrats, largely due to these uh, migrant demographics. The Republican Party at that time was very much dominated by the Chamber of Commerce, cheap labor crowd. And as a result, you kind of saw the backlash from Pat Buchanan. It was not a coincidence why after uh, Reagan left office, Buchanan challenged George W. Bush in the primaries in 92 I mean, uh, George H.W. Bush in the primaries in 92 on a pretty anti-globalist platform and calling for ending these interventions abroad, bringing back the troops home and also restricting immigration. To some extent, you saw that with the rise of Ross Perot as well as blowback against the GOP's pro-corporate policies. But then you kind of saw a reversion back to the con Inc. type of policies with George W. Bush. And the Bush family has massive dealings in Mexico. That's like very well documented. And I think that they basically do want to create just like one gigantic commercial zone between Mexico and the US and just erase the border and everything like that. But I think the GOP now is slightly different because of Trump, regardless of what you think about Trump. Um, I have plenty of criticism because of all his staff decisions and just the people he surrounded himself with. It has cr- created new factions within the GOP that are much more immigration skeptic and also non- slightly more non-interventionist. They're more skeptic. Goal of these nation-building schemes. But now the left, it's ironic there. Um, they used to be very
0: <clears throat>
1: critical of immigration on labor grounds. Like Bernie Sanders, people tend to forget this. in During the Bush era when the, he was proposing amnesty, he was one of the people that stood up against it because of the fact that it would dispossess American workers and all of that but the roles have kind of reversed because the the modern day democrat party is much more in the pocket of woke capital and other gigantic corporations and many leftists now have made strange bedfellows with corporate entities and now are no longer really standing up for workers that's why you'll see them basically be pushing for amnesty and also these weird trade deals like tpp or whatever that do not work to serve the interests of the American worker, so you are seeing kind of a realignment emerge now, where the um, the mainstream right, if you will, they're starting to take on more populist policies, and the left is becoming much more globalist, and it's purging out some of its more reasonable voices, like Glenn Greenwald, Jimmy Dore, and other people that have traditionally been skeptical of the neoliberal status quo of the past. 30 to 40 years.
0: And yeah, you mentioned the Bush family trying to create this giant North American economic zone, which for me is their first approach to create, you know, of of globalism is working economically, as we mentioned, um, the the monopoly of of malls here in Mexico. And I was shocked to hear AMLO. um, I knew this was coming, but it was strange to hear from AMLO last week said that that he wanted to integrate canada usa and mexico basically the north american union he literally said amlo that based on the EU, Europe, sh- european sh- union model uh, to use the celac organization to to kind of integrate us canada uh, um, and mexico so that was tra- just kind of shock a bit shocking to hear it come from uh, amlo um
1: that's that indeed he's like a le- he's a traditional leftist labor populist too like his background, that's actually pretty shocking. That's like if Bernie Sanders in the US like said something to that effect.
0: Yeah, well, I, I, he he was kind of emphasizing where the countries retained their uh, sovereignty. Okay, but still like integrating. I mean, any way, which way you cut it. I, I, I recall from the Canadian Fraser Institute, I forget the guy's name, who uh, put out the white paper in the 90s on the Amero, uh, he basically said, you know, if this, if this happened, that Washington would have like seventy percent control of the monetary system, while Canada and Mexico would retain only fifteen percent. So again, like, and even if you go going by by default going in that direction, Mexico will lose um, some oh, of its because- sovereignty. I had a last question uh on on Cuba you had done for your Substack for your paid subscribers recently a talk on on Cuba I haven't been following closely what's going on uh in Cuba but do do you feel the status quo will continue to remain uh in Cuba or or do you see any major changes dem- democratization you know so called uh in Cuba coming
1: You know it's an interesting question <clears throat> with regards to Cuba because now that the Castro's have become increasingly out of the picture. There's going to be definitely some legitimacy crises taking there and like a transition towards a new leadership. So they're going to be tested. And I actually think the U S is obviously going to make plays there. And there's already a discourse now where people are talking about potentially incorporating Cuba into the United States. Like you had bill crystal saying, in a tweet several months ago that once Cuba is liberated, we should consider adding it to the US as like a 51st, 52nd state, if you will. That's obviously a long-term project, but the fact that's actually being floated out there is interesting because I think it's pretty obvious when you have a country that's as strong as the US and a country that's so close to the US, like Cuba, that's on a wayward path the people in D.C. definitely want to affect some form of regime change and turn it into just another appendage of its massive consumer imperium. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. I think that they may switch to a more managed democracy model a Venezuela or like Turkey or to some extent Russia to transition to that because the – Castro dynasty model definitely was a thing that may have had validity for the Cuban state in the 20th century, but I think that now it probably has to evolve a bit. But there will definitely be a lot of subversion from abroad. And I also think you might see a lot of geopolitical jousting, too, with the rise of um, China and also Russia, which have pretty solid interests in Cuba as well as countries like Venezuela and Nicaragua. So they're gonna, um, there's definitely going to be some battles there because I think that if the U.S. really <clears throat> st- still sees itself as this like unipolar power that could take on Russia and China in their own backyards, I think those great powers will respond in kind and take on the U.S. in its own backyard by trying to prop up Regimes in Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, or even to potentially, I think, try to weaponize um, migration in Mexico and Central America. Because if you're going to put military assets on our borders, then we'll do other subversive stuff. We'll respond in kind by messing things up in your neck of the woods. So it's it's a it's a chess match, and I think that we're going to see that play out in countries like Cuba. And we already kind of saw that play out to some extent in Venezuela, where you saw China, Russia, and a, a constellation of other powers from Iran, Turkey, say that we're going to prop up the Maduro regime and we're, we're not going to buy into the idea that Guaido or any other person is is like the legitimate leader of Venezuela because they've already done the color revolution stuff all over Russia's backyard. And, and to some extent, they're going to probably start doing that more in China with the announcement of AUKUS and the pivot to Asia, so I think you're going to see some really hardcore geopolitical jousting taking place in the Western Hemisphere if the U.S. gets too uppity in other parts of the globe.
0: I hadn't heard that uh, idea of Cuba being incorporated into the U.S., but it doesn't surprise me at all. And you mentioned chessboard. In fact, I think that um, the, the rules of the you know international relations uh, you know grand chessboard of the game have completely changed and. Uh, now we're in this kind of supranational globalist world regime where nation states no longer can compete economically, politically, geopolitically. And from here on out, it's just going to be regional blocks, regional unions like yeah. the European Union. That's the name uh, of the game. And as I said, we saw AMLO now declare a move, uh, initiative to go towards a North American uh, Union. We see uh, UK now talking about joining into that, which is actually a 1939 globalist plan uh, that was discussed creating this Atlantic Union f- f- that starts with the uh, Britain and U.S. together, you know, like an economic re- integration re- regional union, and then this is how they create uh, the ultimate world uh, union. So I wouldn't be surprised at all Cuba joining, um, and 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 in, and you have this, you know, North American zone, and then the South American union and and zone, and that's just how I see things going forward yeah. um you're so uh, i think you, you left us uh, with a good uh, final thought there on geopolitical jousting if you have any other final thought and then uh, otherwise you're on twitter at jose al nino and your website is also josealnino.com but you're also like on a million other platforms uh, you have substack you have a podcast yeah. uh, people can support you on patreon subscribe star and you're also f- featured in a bunch of places mises big league politics uh, i think sometimes on zero hedge uh, and elsewhere um, where do people go to best follow your work?
1: Yeah, as you mentioned, Jose Al Nino is where you can find my free stuff on Twitter. I'm generally posting there every day, especially my articles from Big League Politics, Liberty Conservative News, and the Mises Institute. Now, for my more like in-depth content, you'll find that at Substack Jose Niño Unfiltered. And then I have my podcast that's more for like the premium subscribers. El Nino speaks, where I talk about all sorts of issues. And if you subscribe to my Substack and go for the paid options, you'll receive that. And last but certainly not least, this dovetails into what I talked about localism. I have my own type of political newsletter on Patreon and Subscribe Start called The Nino File. That's where I train people and give them advice on how to run political campaigns and set up groups at the local level so that they can get more involved and fight back against many establishment actors that are undermining our freedom that's called the nino file and you could subscribe there on Subscribestar star or patreon
0: all right if you enjoy jose nino's perspective uh, sign up to his uh, newsletter and follow him on twitter and everywhere else he mentioned i'll include the links in the description it's always uh, good to chat jose
1: thank you so much for having me on
0: I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account, Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, Bitshoot, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.